0: Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this time, uh, pleasant evening, good food, and we're grateful for the saints and for your word. We'd ask that we would be uh, submissive to the wisdom of Solomon. In your son's name, amen. Okay, it's good to see that none of you killed yourself last week. Um, what's that? Things did not... People don't like those first three chapters, but... They're good because he comes to the conclusion that there's nothing better for you to do than pay attention to the enjoyments that are available to you in the now rather than set your sights on trying to accomplish something and then die. That was basically the sum of it. And in a matter of fact, that your task is to enjoy the now. Your task is to enjoy it. Because we're always thinking we can accomplish more than we can when we decide that it's going to be later. Later is uh, We start to become fanciful. We start to dream. We start to think utopian thoughts about what's going to happen in 20 years Um, That's why it's always so hard to go to your 20th reunion Because you everybody knows they were supposed to have been astronauts by now and you're not you work at a Dairy Queen you know, I hope nobody actually works at the Dairy Queen here. But. So, the, the realization of that task has been put on you in the first three chapters. Enjoy life. That's what you're supposed to do. And who can have enjoyment apart from God, it says. For the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. So, as we go into the book, there is this task on Solomon that he has felt of, um, well, how? you know, what, what, am I, what am I pointing at? It's not merely keep the law, because he actually doesn't really address the law that much. He ob- addresses obedience to God and uh, being judged towards the end of the book uh, for your morality, but, but he doesn't raise the law of Moses as the task. He's, he's looking at life as you live it, and you want to know what's better for you to be doing. Now, one of the words that reoccurs through these three chapters is the word better it is better that. Uh, you'll see it in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness. 9. Two are better than one. I made them red so that you could see them easily. So I want you to be, be aware that Solomon is, is giving you, <clears throat> you might say, guideposts of what would be better for you to be looking at and considering. And some of the things play against Because if you have been driving your life as if you were going to have some utility before you died, uh, and you're still struggling with the first three chapters, uh, keep struggling with that. But he's going to say some things that you'll have to be on board with Solomon to feel yourself agreeing with. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun, And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Well, that sounds like a nice social action verse. Um, We're all concerned about oppressed peoples, and there's no one to comfort them. But look at the next verse. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. You have to realize that everything in life, every avenue of achievement, be you the the ruled or the rulers. You're trying to get somewhere you can't get. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who were still alive. He, he gathers them together in a bunch and says, look, this, this futility is a curse on everything. St. Paul addresses it in Romans 8. I mentioned last week, we groan inwardly because of the futility that God has subjected the creation to. And Solomon's saying, you know, be you're better off dead, you know, because you what does it say? We're more fortunate than living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I say, what's better here? Not being born at all. Now, you say, Well, how is that actually a choice for me? That's really I don't, I'm here, too late. I've been born, and I'm not dead. I'm stuck with the living one part. The dead are, they're over it. The, born, the not yet born, the unborn haven't seen it. Uh, but he's not trying to suggest to you that you somehow imagine yourself unborn, but that you understand how negative Solomon is viewing the world. It's a viewpoint that never having seen this, we live in the lap of luxury. We're sitting in the backyard in North Idaho, having stuffed our fat little faces and eaten chocolate. Ladies, Eating chocolate. You're feeling like what's it, the cat strung out on tuna. And uh, we've got the, the aspens of the Fred Banks Memorial Aspen Grove growing up above you, uh, the crows that we, we hate with a passion. Um, Everything is pretty good. We don't always see this viewpoint Solomon is speaking of, but it's there nonetheless, because we're still caught up in the, that, that portion of the earlier part of the book where he was still trying to achieve something with his pleasures. We're still right in the midst. I'm 57 years old. Uh, my, my lawn's beginning to look halfway decent, and I have hope that utopia will be established here in my yard, and I will be wrong. I will be dead, and this house will be a pile of dust, and this city will be forgotten. It's better to not even been born. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. You say, first off, you're going, you mean I'm... Some of the young men are going, you mean I am okay with not having any ambition? And some of the parents are going, hold it, you're telling my kids not to have any ambitions? Just saying, I didn't write this. The wisest man that ever lived, who is smarter than you, wrote this. Take it up with the Lord, or when you're dead and you find out he was right, you can take it up with him. The, the word envy here has to do with jealousy or zeal. I think is it, sometimes it's translated, or zeal or going after it. And we're not. I, I don't want you to think just merely in terms of. You know perfectly well that the the straight reading of that man's envy of the neighbor, keeping up with the Joneses, having your stuff compare with somebody else's stuff, that is a measurement because you really have a hard time knowing how good your life, your sense of self is, without a comparison, without a measurement device. If you were Robinson Crusoe, and you had just figured out how to make some shoes out of bark, and sure, they weren't the latest fashion, but nobody with the latest fashion lived on the island with you, you wouldn't care, nor would you know, you'd just be pleased that now you have bark shoes. But as soon as that shipwrecked, carnival cruise liner shows up on the island and you're waddling about carrying whatever extra poundage and a grass skirt and bark shoes and all these lovely people with lovely clothes show up, suddenly you got ambition. You want to keep up with it. Not always a negative jealousy envy, but just a measurement. Because the pride of life, how you define yourself, what is the measure what what is the value of the order that you've brought to your life how do you value it without a comparison you know st paul warns us against that in corinthians about comparing ourselves one to another to take care that you don't devour one another this also is a vanity in striving after wind but on the other side of the question here's a nice little proverb the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And the parents go, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Why don't you get to work? So what it was Solomon's, back the first part of the chapter, you know the oppressed? No one comforts them. You know the oppressors? No one comforts them. You know the hardworking? They're moved by this. You know the fools? They don't do any work. There's self-destruction in their life. They follow the simplest path to ease. They're not looking for it. They're looking for what they think is enjoyment, which is not accomplishing or doing anything. They're not looking for finding the things beautiful in their time. They just want all their time to themselves. But then he says, better. Just like it's better not to have lived, it is better in regard to ambition and laziness for a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind." Now what do you want to do there? Now it's not because it's mathematical, but if you want to do the math it's twice as good. One hand full of quietness is better than two hands full of toil. Now Solomon is somebody who outworked you all. He outsmarted you all, he outworked you all, he accomplished far more than any of us will ever think of accomplishing in his life. And he still he comes back to this. And I do think Ecclesiastes was written at the end of his life. Uh, We don't have any biblical record of it being written, nor do we have any biblical record of him coming to his moral senses in the history of of Solomon. But there are aspects of the book that that bespeak an old man. But he's looking at this and saying, it's better to have the quiet. Now in Proverbs one of my favorite, I think I may have mentioned it last week, the, a tranquil mind gives life to the flesh, but passion makes the bones rot. And when we live according, live according to the pride of life, your accomplishments of who you are, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, if I'm just going after those and violating 1 John where he tells me not to love those things, those are going to be my motivations, those are going to be my passions. I'm going to think I'm accomplishing something, stacking up enough pleasurable instances in my life, or stacking up a lot of accomplishment in my life. It's far better for you to be tranquil. You can say peaceful, to be at peace, to have the right order. Now you can have order to your pleasures, and you can have order to your ambitions, but God wants to order your life in the time that he made it. Remember, He has made everything beautiful in its time. There's a time for every matter under heaven. You're assigned, first off, to be right now and to take real consideration, not of what order you could put things in that would accomplish what you want to do, but what order does the Creator want things in? Because remember, to the man who pleases Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. I don't get the joy I was assigned to get unless I please God. I don't get it oh i could get the pleasure i could get the reward of whatever um, either sinful motivation or just self-motivation can give me but i won't get the pleasure of god on my life i won't have the joy of god's occupation if i'm not occupying myself in the pattern he gave me again i saw vanity under the sun a person who has no one either son or brother Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Just like the sin of the sluggard, Solomon's great on the sluggard in Proverbs, you know, the door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard on his bed, everything's a scare to him, he doesn't want to get out of bed, um, too lazy to pull his hand back from the bowl to feed himself. Um, Some people are like that. Other people have the, the thrill of the pride of life in their pursuit of things. And he says, this guy's been trapped in it. He's not even doing it for his descendants. He has no people to inherit from him. And he never even asks himself, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself? All of us should be asking whatever we are doing. Someone may respond to me and say, you know, well, shouldn't I be doing what I'm doing to the glory of God? Yes. You should be doing what God commanded you to the glory of God. And if God told you that a handful of quietness is better than two hands full of toil, why are you giving your dull darn all to filling your two hands full of toil? Because you were told to do otherwise. You're not supposed to do that which is folly. I'm not saying that your work is evil. I'm saying... If you're given the assignment, what is good for me to do in my life? And Solomon has told you, and you say, no, 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 no. I think it'll work out differently for me this time. Do what the Lord tells you with all your effort. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Another better, verse 9. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they are warm. But how can one be a warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's almost a Hallmark card. Try to avoid that sensation. They probably, I've never actually seen a card with this on it, but I imagine they drop out the fighting part at the end. That we could beat up the guy that attacks us. There's not that. That doesn't fit in. And they always, if it's a Bible lesson, if it's trying to edify you, it'll say a threefold cord is not. It'll be on a, a marriage card, a wedding card. It'll be a young silhouette of a couple, and maybe their rings, and then a cross between them, a threefold cord. You know, like Jesus. Now, I was in a Navy. I was a sailor. And one of the things you got trained in, whether you needed it or not in boot camp in uh, the Navy, was called marlin spike. Anybody know what marlin spike is? Tying knots. Marlin spike. Uh, it had to do with a, a particular all sort of thing you use to complicate complicated knots. Now, let me tell you something. There aren't two-fold cords. That's just twisted string. Because it doesn't function together unless you braid at least three right you can braid more twa- things into it but you just spin something around you're not gonna get a rope I don't think he's trying to hide the Trinity or you and your lovely spouse and him in this passage you, If you want to feel that feel 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 it but here the situation is your task is to find the betters I've got a task to make this now enjoyed in the light of God. And he says, you know, you might want company. Because in company, the quietness of life, the, the good from the conversation to the protection to the, to the practicalities of life are achieved more when there's a fraternity with you and someone else in it. And you might want to braid it. I don't want to get too sensitive here or make any women cry, but you might want to You know, braid yourself together with those people. Have your life not be so separate that you can't get the benefit of the saints. This is why we gather together in the church, is because, not only because we love each other, but (coughs) we have real benefit from it. It is better than being one. Back to the creation. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 13. Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will no longer take advice, even though he had gone from prison to the throne or in his own kingdom had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, as well as that youth who was to stand in his place. There was no end of all the people. He was over all of them. Yet those who come after later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. You want to pull out of that. What's the better? You say, I don't have a king. I'm not an old and foolish king. But it is better to exist with the benefit wisdom brings poverty and youth than what folly brings old and power. Old and power are no competition to wisdom in terms of what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to achieve the the governance of your own life. Your, I've said this to many of you, your humanity is defined by the degree of governance you have arrived at, the quality and degree. And God is trying to instruct you on what the the things I value more are. Would it be better to have power than wisdom? Well, he seems to suggest, even though at this point in his life, he may be or has been an old and foolish king himself, He'd gone after other gods, he had married way too many women. And you have to ask yourself, do you believe, at any of these points, going back, always go back to the beginning, is it right what he said, that death, you know, apart from our Christian life eternal, what we have moved on, but that doesn't change what you make here terminated by death. What you make here terminated by death, it's over for all that you build. All that you added to you, super added to your life, is gone. Your marriage is gone, the Lord said. There's neither marriage nor given in marriage in heaven. It says in Corinthians, God will destroy both the food and stomach. Eat it now. The, all these things are, this body's going to pass away. The house you spent so much time decorating is going to pass away. All the things that catch us in our life that we can occupy ourselves with and you have to ask yourself at every stage am I accepting this or am I falling back to my Americanism or my can-do you know Scots Irish quality verse chapter 5 another better this is this is the section I consider how to cut down on your prayer life Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. You say, you really want me to cut down on my, well, shut up until you have something to say. One, don't just go, Father, 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 just Father, Father, just Father, just, just, just. would you please oversee my just, see, remove the word just from your prayers, because I'll smack you and i remember back in the 70s when somebody had taught oh we're praying to the father a biblical notion you know don't pray to christ pray to the father pretty soon everybody was shoving the word father like you know or like to the point i was in a bible study in pullman and the person had gotten this almost a mystic fit saying the word father it was coming out "Ah, uh." that was it by the end of the prayer he was barely enunciating vague two syllables that may have been interpreted as father now we're foolish when we go about prayers we don't stop and go, you know maybe I should be listening I have he has more to tell me than I have to tell him, but sometimes not just because we don't know how to pray as we ought and you don't maybe don't know how to listen as we ought but but we also don't think of our God as our Master with things for us to do. He Good works prepared for us to do beforehand. He wants us to have um, a response to Him. When a fool has um, his chance, he will go on and on. Probably in King James English. I think it was an old, I think it was a Dwight Moody illustration where one of those great famous preachers of old who was being about to speak and somebody had come to hear him, some secular guy, and, and, uh, and I, it may be apocryphal, but the basic story is that uh, the guy who was introducing him was opening in prayer and going on and on in King James did non-stop praying. And finally Moody got up and said, Well, Brother So-and-so finishes his fine prayer, let's, you know, and led the congregation in song. We think we'll be heard for our many words, it says in the New Testament. Do not pray like the Gentiles do, who think they will be heard for their many words. Vain repetition. And people think, I'm praying, how can I be doing evil? They don't know they're doing evil when they offer the sacrifice of fools. <clears throat> do you come before God with the sense of he is your master? You need masters to listen to, especially with God. And and the question is, do you have any? Is your prayer life the prayer life of a conference call between you and your somewhat employer? Your religious employer is Jesus, or the Christian God and. You got to check in kind of once a day, and and clock in. You're basically reading your Bible and clocking in with prayer, and that's about it. He's someone you should be listening to, so that you don't end up being a religious fool. And you don't, you want to want to listen to what you pray. Turn on a tape recorder. Listen to yourself. Are you praying to your Lord? Are you making requests? Are you coherent? Are you offering, having listened to what he has told you in the Word of God? When he said, when the disciples said, "Teach us to pray," he gave you the Lord's prayer. You have all examples of prayer. Have you looked at the Scriptures to find what you're what you're instructed to ask him for, to thank him for? You are supposed to pray, but are you operating with a with your master having told you how to do it, and that you're addressing your master when you're doing it, so you're ready to shut up. You're ready to listen. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice? and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase, empty words grow many. But do you fear God? The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, I'll give you a reference here, John 8, he said what the Father told him to say. Jesus Christ said what the Father, and only what the Father told him to say. We go on, we can talk, Inanities, nonsense, and even in our religious devotions. I'm not saying that you've got to take the inanities out of your life, for some of you might vaporize. Not, not anyone here. Probably somebody else. The, the, the need to talk nonsense is probably human. But when you're going before the Lord, you don't vow things you can't pay because it sounds good. God gets angry. No, God is not full of, oh, he's full of grace, but people like you, he wants to knock into the next county. Angry at the sound of your voice. Have you ever thought that, that you, you think that God is so grateful when you finally prayed? You finally took something up with him. He's going to, he's going to be so thrilled to hear from me. And he looks at you like, I'm going to kill him. Somebody stop me thunderstorms roll through here you might not want to be standing on your porch or in your yard with a golf club or anything like that if you're behaving God is going to say hey here's an opportunity I'm sick of hearing from him I'm I'm a little angry with him he'll be better off in heaven he'll think more clearly what you need to be doing is not just listening to God that's one it's better to listen than to be this way it's better to be silent than be this way. You don't want to try to absolve yourself by the cheap grace that you have lying around that, that oh, I'm sorry, I've, oh, I, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have vowed that. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Am I going to say to the angel, the word messenger there is angel. It was a mistake, honest. And God's going to get a little like Guido at this point, not the angel going to break some kneecaps what what's causing it not just our cavalier approach to the whole thing we're we're just walking around doing religion as it off the seat of our pants and how we inherited it from our fellow christians and and the kind of osmotic learning you picked up from the people around you you end up praying like the people in your christian group pray or you 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 talk about worship like you knew what you were doing and just people making stuff up. When dreams increase empty words grow many. We can fill our thoughts with all sorts of religious offerings that we're ready to give. That we're ready to trot out there to please the Lord. And you can have religion filled with emptiness that God hates and hates hearing from. He would rather have those that fear Him Do you fear God? Or are you just got some sort of stockpiled dreamy Christianity that you've never thought about or checked? It's always amazing to people when they finally read a verse that tells them what they've been doing, like when Jesus Christ tells the disciples not to ask anything of him in prayer, but to ask it of the Father in his name. In case you ever wondered why we say, in Jesus' name, amen. We're asking of the Father in Jesus' name. But a lot of people, just because they think it's kind of a dreamy and cooler thing to do, to pray to Jesus, never bothered to read their Bibles, never bothered to listen, just filled up the blanks with whatever they decided to do. They just start praying to Jesus. I well, does he say, well, is that evil? He told you not to. Do you fear God? Do you have a master that you're listening for in your prayers, or are you offering the sacrifice of fools? Remember, you're supposed to be designing a now that you will enjoy because you've done it God's way, and he conspires to give you wisdom, knowledge, and joy in the now. That's who he gives it to. This is a verse, next verse, is one I turn to frequently because I'm in a lot of debates about, you know, politics and the like. And you know know I'm a monarchist and I... So I like this verse. But I want you to be seeing it in light of the surrounding passages. If you see in a province the poor oppressed and justice and right violently taken away, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But in all, a king is an advantage to a land with cultivated fields." We have lived in a society since the Enlightenment that has been anti-masters. You have been brainwashed to believe that it is somehow that you are King Leonidas at the edge of the pit kicking the Persian envoys into it, yelling and spitting, we are Sparta, because aren't you independent and great and Western and individual? And of course, King George was mad. And he taxed us on our tea. You have to remember that the need, the the evil in the world, there's a need that it be judged for it to be judged there has to be masters. Even in our system we have to create masters and judges and criminal law and enforcement. No matter what you'll end up with masters. Remember that that there's this the presence of judgment of evil exists from the top down. You notice how he says when you've got a problem in the society and there's oppression, don't be startled. There are officials who have been tasked to deal with it. And if they don't, someone above them is tasked to deal with it. And all in all there's a king at the top and above him is God. And God will deal with it. It, it pr- provides us a, a frame of ease in our now that even though there's oppression, we're far more concerned with how are we going to get comfort for the oppressed to the oppressor. How are I can let this go this oppression and not be amazed because I also know that that structure will finally judge the living and the dead all judgment will happen it says my brother never avenge yourselves for vengeance is mine saith the lord i will tend to it jesus christ and peter is said to did not revile in return but he trusted to him who judges justly he rendered the judgment of pilate and the and Caiaphas and Annas took Jesus to God himself. They would be judged. Part of your now is relinquishing your self-guided life, listening to God, listening to your betters, not being a fool, not just collecting your dreams and trotting them out there in your life for everybody to abhor and God to abhor. You to find your right masters, you don't take peace that the masters will deal with it. You probably found that when you were little and you took something to your dad and he said, okay, don't worry about it. I'll deal with it. Your, your sibling had violated the law of the land in some way and you trotted off to do your duty. And, and, and your father said, I'll deal with it. And you felt, yes, okay, good. He will deal with it. Now, sometimes you felt that you had to deal with it too. So he went back and shared with the sibling that God the Father was going to deal with it, just to make sure they felt especially bad, violating the scriptures on this point. Took some vengeance yourself. But you know what that is, to give it over to the authority that has charge of it. You don't avenge yourself. Vengeance is God's. We don't have a Wild West here where we shoot our neighbors for the violations of the law they commit. We don't pull over someone driving past our house. We trust those authorities that God has given to society. He has made them. They execute his wrath, it says in Romans 13, on the wrongdoer. That's how God's wrath comes to man. One of the means. You have to be aware that as Americans, you have a virtue of masterlessness. You have a virtue called independence, which is probably more of a vice that might keep you from submitting it to your parents as you ought to to your spouse as you ought to, to your god as you ought to, to your nation state as you ought to. And some of those things are crucial ideas if you're going to find the way to joy in this immediate, if you're always struggling, if you're some sort of libertarian that cannot stop shaking your fist at the, you know, the, the IRS or whatever else you might shake your fist at. Oppressions happen. Life's bad, then you die. Your task is how to make peace out of your own life, your own immediate now. And part of this is, are you um, having the right view about the authorities and the crimes that are committed? Can you not be amazed at the matter? Or do you always, you know, oh my gosh, how can we stop this? Yeah, they're bad things. God has put people in charge to deal with them. And if they don't, he has put people in charge to deal with them. What did he just tell you? He has put people in charge. Was that, line, was that the line at the end of Indiana Jones? Which people? Very important people. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Yeah, that is a good truth to put on the fridge. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with gain. This also is vanity. It just seems really... How do I... Why do we keep loving money? (laughs) I mean, for 6,000 years, we've been loving money, and nobody has gotten satisfied when they got there. Because it's... I don't know if it's a law of... Diminishing, what's it called? Law of, what? Diminishing returns. Diminishing returns. Um, you feel differently about it. You feel differently about it. The profit you have just is nowhere near, because one, you're still not feeling good, although you got $100,000. But I'm still not feeling good. That Buddhist I was talking to the other day, just gotten a doctorate, and uh, was unhappy, and couldn't understand why. You achieve. You get the profit you work for. If you love, if, you, if you're committed to serve these things, the reason you're doing it is to get the thing God promised to you in the now for pleasing him, for focusing on your toil now, just focusing on your life now. If you don't, if you give yourself to it, the profit's not going to answer. So you'll always be chasing that degree of profit that that uh, you think you lack. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what gain has their owner but to see them with his eyes? i got a pile of gold and a lot more retainers over here, a lot more domestic help because i got a bigger house. I need to have more people working on it. And I've got, now I've got fields. And I've got to have people working that. And so i got to re- do the, uh, all the federal paperwork, and I've got to pay them. And, and I still, yeah, I've got a lot of profit, but my relationship to that profit is to look at the pile of it. Look what he says next. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. Now why? This, the, the laborer who's digging a ditch, he gets paid at the end of the day, and he has enough money in that pay at the end of the day to buy his shelter for the night and his food for the day. And he's out of money. But he's got a job digging that ditch tomorrow, and he'll, he goes home. He's tired. He falls asleep. He's almost condemned by circumstance to be um, uh, in the now. because <laughs> It's called subsistence. The person who makes profit, and there's nothing wrong with profit, you'll see in the next uh, paragraph or so, there's nothing wrong with the wealth unless I'm expecting it to be something or do something it isn't. But the surfeit of the rich will not let him sleep. Surfeit, it's not a word you use often. It means satiation. It's the, the fullness, the, the abundance. I can't go to sleep because I have so much. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. It's an anecdote, an illustration to make you feel the tragedy of our relationship to our money. Because the man who believes in the profit, there's a temptation in profit to try to get more profit because I'm not happy yet. I'm looking at the pile, and I'm looking at the greater vexation in my life, and I say, okay, and so I'm susceptible. You ever watch these American greed shows on TV where all these people get taken for a major loss by some Ponzi scheme? And I'm looking at all these people especially with their Christian Ponzi schemes. I'm looking at these people going you just wanted a lot of money return for what you were doing. You really the, you believe these glowing promises because that's what I can do with my profit, make more profit. And this guy does it here, he loses it all in a bad venture. And he had someone who was going to inherit it and he's got nothing now. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil, which he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain has he that he toiled for the wind and spent all his days in darkness and grief, in much vexation and sickness and resentment? You can write stories like that. That's not just a a single story about how people deal and trust in money. We got the rich fool in Luke who didn't do anything wrong, just planned to build bigger barns when he was going to die that night. He didn't know he was going to die that night. Bigger barns actually are meaningless for someone who's going to die that night. We have all sorts of ways of spending all this profit. What is Solomon's recommendation? Well, he wants to remember what he said in the first three chapters. Behold, what I've seen to be good and to be fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life, which God has given him, for this is his lot." He concluded that in the first three chapters. He's reminding you again. But here's a, this is not merely <coughs> the king at his old age trying to tell his subjects, you know, uh, really, you got nothing to work for. Um, yeah, I tried it all out. I was wealthy. Um, no, there's not a whole lot of me. Don't bother yourself with it. Just take solace in your poverty or middle class existence and, and be happy with your job. This is actually a way of seeing the world as God sees the world. This is not a lifestyle for some and not for others. This is not for the poor man and not for the rich man. The rich man has his own temptations hard to get into the kingdom of God, according to Jesus Christ, because they may have uh, a greater degree of belief in money than the poor man may. But a lot of times the poor man has a belief in money too. Whatever the case, we're all supposed to see this way. Because look what he says next. Every man also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, and in red, power to enjoy them and also in red and to accept his lot and find enjoyment in his toil this is the gift of god regular guy digging a ditch working at les schwab whatever he's doing coming home cracking open a beer and life's good i have found the path i'm listening to god i'm designing my now to be in obedience to him i'm going to please him now Not please him later, please him now. I'm going to take the enjoyments he has given. I'm going to look for the time of everything. I'm going to find the beauty in my life. And same is true with the rich man. He's got more to play with, but he's got the same task. He's got wealth, he's got possessions from the hand of God, and he's been given the power to enjoy them. But he has to accept his lot. There's there's none of this uh, post-egalitarian redistributionist notion In Solomon. He doesn't say, and give away all that you have like St. Francis. Enjoy it. Accept it and enjoy it. Now, you were told to enjoy it now because you can't pile it up and count on enjoying it later. You don't have a later. Your later may be over tonight. This may have been it. And this verse 20 is good. For he, the rich guy, will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What a great promise. That's your occupation. God wants to occupy you with joy. And we want to be occupied with some other task that someone will pay us for that we can buy a 401k and have savings and so that someday we will either pass on to our idiot children that amount of money or enjoy it in retirement we worked all that vexation all that darkness and find that suddenly it all gets taken suddenly the stock market (laughs) everything you had invested in wise secure investments like treasury bills or something like that and the nation goes under You've been watching cities go bankrupt in California? Watch Greece? Spain? Tell me it can't happen in the United States. Then where is all your digital money that you keep in Bank of America? In hyperspace, erased, nowhere to be gotten. And it represents all those years of work. And you did not have anything for all that you did. And if you... That's a great evil. That's what he said back a few paragraphs ago. It was a grievous evil he saw under the sun to see that kind of calamity. He said, well, I don't think it's going to happen. It happens, and it might happen to you. The whole point is not whether I'm going to risk it, but are you doing what you were told? Does God want to occupy you, not remembering your life because you're thinking about how joyful you are in your circumstance? These are all the gifts of God. And in case you're wondering if Solomon is, Evan, I think you probably twisted that passage. I don't know how. I'll go home and work on it. Because people don't like seeing rich people being called, gifted by, ah, oh, wealth, possessions, power to accept it, you know, enjoy my life. It's a just a little bit too, you know, you may be thinking that it sounds too much like a party going on all the time for them. And is that right? Shouldn't he give it all away? Well, if you think that he's he's not serious, he reverses it in chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen out of the sun, and it lies heavy upon men. I don't know if you agree that it's heavy upon men, but Solomon thinks so. A man to whom God gives, this is God-given, wealth, God-given, like in the previous guy, possessions, God-given, and God-given honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and is a sore affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many. So you got that whole thing of you know, pumping out a lot of kids. And he's not one of those Abrahams. You're trying to dicey about whether to have even one. And he's got lots of them. He's got 14. And they're all boys and play football. And he's living a long time, too. He's just a naturally healthy guy like me. And um, no matter what he eats, it doesn't seem to affect him. But he does not enjoy life's good things and also has no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better off. Oh, another better. An untimely birth is better off than he, like a stillborn infant. For it comes into vanity and goes into darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. You know, Solomon's looking at this like we would see, you know, if you've had friends who've had um, uh, a late miscarriage and had a stillbirth, it's a major tragedy. And Solomon's not saying that's not a major tragedy, that's just not as bad as this. How bad is that? Pretty bad. But to look at a man who has been given opportunity say in the United States and he's done something with his life some woman that has done something with her life and achieved so much and and yet God has not given the power to enjoy it to the man who pleases him God gives wisdom knowledge and joy God has not given him the power to enjoy it not just because he's cruel it's not like he gave you all this good he wanted you to turn to now he wanted you to please him he wanted you to take up wisdom He wanted you to take up wisdom so that you could find this joy, and you didn't. You did not receive from God the power to enjoy it. It would be better off if we were dealing with the tragedy of a stillbirth than in your life, because that's all it was. Because life itself, so Solomon's getting at, he says, what's good for a man to do in his life, what's good is this. This is life. This is what you were given. None of what you're building you can take, right? Can't take it with you? None of what you're building can you take. None of it will last. It will rot in somebody's hand, and you will be dust in the ground. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice told yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place." Now back in Solomon's day, they all did. They all went to Hades, the Sheol. Everybody died and went to the the waiting place of the dead. That's what they were looking forward to. But as Christians, we're looking forward to something different in the afterlife, but everything you're measuring out here, I'm, I'm not saying, and, 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 and these Adirondacks, I really like them, Lord, can I tab those two? In glory, everything here is, is is transient; it's passing. Verse seven: All the toil of man is for his mouth; yet his appetite is not satisfied. I like sitting in those chairs. You guys like sitting in those chairs? It's better than this chair. But you know, you'll get up, and that pleasure you felt will be gone—a memory. You can't take a photograph of it either. You, can't, you can think about it for a briefly. You won't be able to remember it. Then you'll want to come over again so you can sit in them again. But you're never satisfied with what comes at you. The whole, all of history is passing through your senses and flushing out the other side. Like I said last week, it's going into the dumpster. Everything you enjoyed. You can't be satisfied. And you're feeding yourself, your eyes, your mouth, your ears, all the time. So you're assigned joy, not satisfaction. Don't think you've got to get satisfaction. What's the line? I can't get now satisfaction. Here's a prophet, one of our own. You can't hang on to the joy. You just have the joy. The joy is something you live in. It's a way of being, a way of seeing, a place you stand before God where his wisdom, knowledge, and joy rests on you because you've committed yourself to be here for that purpose, not to be here for some achievement of mankind. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. You say, what? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Now the wise man has this benefit over the fool. We learned that earlier in the first three chapters. It's better to be wise than foolish. It's better to be moral than, it's joy, not profligacy. We're not arguing for satisfaction. We're not arguing for profligacy like it's a party suggestion. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. It's not what we're, we're saying the same actual words, but we're saying something different when we say it. Because for our joy, for our merriness, we have to please God. For our merriness, we have to be wise, because better, the last better of this section, is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of desire. What's he talking about? Back in chapter 2, he says, the wise man has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, And yet I perceive that one fate comes to them all. Wisdom understands better how this now is carried out. The fool walks in darkness. The fool walks by his desire. And he wanders. He just people just bouncing around like a pinball machine trying to figure out what am I going to do next what do I want to do next and they are caught up by a commercial or they're caught up by a movie or they're caught up by a book or they're caught up by a good-looking woman or they're caught up by whatever they're caught up by and they wander through life being bounced around but the sight of your eyes is better than just wandering by your desires so you're not going to get satisfied and you're not called to a party you're called to joy you're called to joy and you want to say how do I?" the things i i need to have to pick that up you're not supposed to be an idiot you're not supposed to be some sort of exuberant person pretending to be joyful you're supposed to be someone who's in a state of a handful of quietness rejoicing because what you're understanding, this is all joy that's coupled with knowledge and wisdom. Not coming apart and coupled with pleasing God. You can't forget that anywhere along this book that Solomon is recommending the pleasure of God, wisdom, knowledge, and joy in the now instead of later. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And well, that just might be good advice. But he also might be talking about his own, this, this lecture he's giving. Because um, he, then he says, The more words, the more vanity, and what is man, the better? For who knows what is good for man while well, he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon is reflecting on what he has done in six chapters out of 12. This is the midpoint of the book. I don't know if you are into chiastic interpretations. I am not. But this might be a chiasm. You could go look into it, where the central point is a mirrored image. We'd have to take a look at that, see if it works out. Stressing this point. Whatever the case, he's been telling you what's good. He has concluded what is good. And he's let you know that he is stronger than you. And this echoes this James passage here on the side. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, town and spend a year there and trade and get gain, whereas you do not know about tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Sounds just like Solomon. What do you think you're doing? talking about don't you back off from your future back off have them great in the will of God I I right now if I'm pleasing God if I'm living to please God concerning myself more for his will I know that the plans I make make them but don't have them be your philosophy for living you make the plans you work hard you go do stuff you say you tell the kids you're going to Disneyland next year whatever you want to do if the Lord wills you're going to Disneyland next year But remember, you're only given the breath you have right now. Don't promise what you can't guarantee. All such boasting is evil. And it's a great evil that you would survive and you find that none of that collected achievement was any good for you at all. You're supposed to live in the will of God. Don't think you can fight with Solomon. That's the other other aspect. And he's already been telling you what's better. And he's going to tell you more of what's better. The next chapter, we get some mo- mo-betters. Um, and uh, some other good, good stuff. But that is on the money, one hour. You may applaud me later. Thank you. Later. Later. Oh. There is only the now. Om. Let's let, let, let us let us thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful once again for this moment. We trust that we will be given more in your faithfulness and mercy. But Lord, have our philosophy to please you here. In your son's name we pray. Amen.